and welcome to W Chat. Today we are interviewing Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe regarding her work surrounding abortion with the LGBTQ population. This episode is the last part of our four-part mini-series. We enjoyed previously interviewing Dr. Hinchcliffe and we are happy that she is able to join us again. If you haven't listened to the other three episodes in this mini-series, we encourage you to check it out. Dr. Mira Shaw and Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe have been very gracious in recording multiple episodes with us to bring you this mini-series on LGBTQ health, and we hope that our listeners find this mini-series to be very informative and helpful. And if you have found this mini-series informative, we encourage you to rate us on iTunes and become a patron of the WChat podcast. You can find out more information about becoming a patron or supporting us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. So as you know, we like to start out by giving our listeners a little background about who we are speaking with. But since we have talked to you before, maybe you could give our listeners a little background as it pertains to providing abortion care, Dr. Hinchcliffe. Sure. So my name is Dr. Natalie Hinchcliffe. I'm super stoked to be on this podcast again, and I'm really glad that you all are giving so much time to these really important topics such as LGBTQ health and abortion care. I think for me, being a cis female, I, of course, started to think largely about abortion as it pertained to me in my life when I became sexually active. Before that time, I only thought about abortion in the way that it was taught to me. And my experience was being raised Catholic. And in my church, we were taught about abortion in a pretty inaccurate way using drawings. I still remember where I was sitting in church in the pew on the right-hand side, seeing a drawing of what was called in the media, not actually performed by physicians, but what was called a partial birth abortion. And so it was a very intense picture that depicted a medical practice that is not how abortion was being done or how abortion is done now. And when I was younger, before these thoughts about abortion actually pertained to me as a person, I was very much against abortion. And it wasn't until I came to be an adult and have to evaluate these judgments as they pertain to me and my body and my life that I started to see the other side of the conversation. Fortunately, as I went through my adulthood, as well as my medical education, I came to know what abortion truly was, how the procedure actually was performed. Formed. And with that knowledge and with the recognition of the importance of myself and my loved ones having the choice whether or not to stay pregnant should they get pregnant, I became a very strong pro-choice advocate to the point that it was important for me to be a provider once I was able to. And that path really meant that from the very beginning of being someone who was going to go to medical school, I was also someone who's going to be an abortion provider. The medical students for choice slogan at the time that really affected me and that I still think about on a daily basis is without providers, there is no choice. And it's absolutely true. If we do not have medical professionals who 
are willing to help people access their right to bodily autonomy to determine if they will remain pregnant or not. We don't have that choice. And I think I want to correct myself a bit because I said medical professionals, but abortion is really such a safe procedure that a lot of people, when they have reduced access, have tried to take it into their own hands to perform. And I think that that shows both why it's so important to keep it safe and legal, because obviously there's a lot that we're able to do to make sure that it is safe for patients that they're not able to do when they're performing it independently. And I think it also shows, if we look at the long history of people attempting to access their reproductive autonomy through self-induced abortion, and the very recent history in our own United States of women trying to access it, especially after a lot of the trap laws came through Texas. There were some statistics that showed in the year after those regulations that over 200,000 women tried to self-induce abortions. So we really can see that no matter what we do on a policy side, women and people who can become pregnant are going to continue to try to access this. And without providers, there is no choice or the only choice is one that is incredibly unsafe for patients. And I feel like as a physician who has the ability to perform this safe legal procedure, I absolutely should. Thank you. And thank you for providing that service. I know, you know, I used to be a nurse in abortion care, and I know sort of all the challenges that go into providing that service to patients. So I always really appreciate those providers that go through all those challenges to provide that service to women. And I think it's important to sort of highlight in that conversation, though, that the challenges don't naturally, in a sense, exist. They exist because of the significant stigma that surrounds this safe and legal procedure. I mean, the education that Dr. Shaw and I were able to access in our residency, a lot of the advocacy work that we got involved in or that we saw surrounding abortion access was really in furthering access in states like New York, but in enabling any point of access in Midwestern and Southern states means specifically looking at my own state in Ohio, we just had an incredible win for one of the abortion clinics, the only remaining abortion clinic in Toledo, Ohio to stay open. And we have seen, I believe it's nine clinics in the last few years in Ohio be closed because of a lot of the regulations that do not improve safety and obviously reduce access for people trying to end an undesired or unplanned pregnancy. And so the difficulties that providers face in trying to access the training really depends on how difficult the abortion is for patients to access, right? Because if you're in a place where there is nowhere for you to train, there's also nowhere for you or your loved one to go should you need an abortion. And so that's more what influences, I think, in addition to a person's own interest is where they literally are and whether or not they're able to get access to training sort of is representative of how difficult it is for patients to get access to care. So was your training part of medical school or did you do something above and beyond your education? I did above and beyond my education in medical school. I actually was asked after I had arranged a rotation that would give me abortion training as a third year medical student, I was asked by the dean of my school to come in and sit down with him so that he could explain to me what it was that I was actually going to go do as if I didn't understand what abortion was or I didn't understand 
very realistically what doing the procedure or being a part of that care would look like. I remember I was on a rotation somewhere. Oh, I know I was. Yeah. I remember the hospital that I was in. It was a Catholic hospital where they were not allowed to perform tubal ligations after deliveries or to prescribe birth control because it was a Catholic hospital. And I remember standing in the hall and saying, I'm the president of Medical Students for Choice. I chose this elective training because I'm going to be an abortion provider and I know what I'm getting myself into and I don't think that I need to sit down with you. And it was a very long process to be able to get that rotation at all. It took me about seven months of jumping through hoops and pushing back against different individuals. And finally, I was able to do it because a former student had done it already. So there was precedence and they couldn't prevent me from doing it, though there certainly felt to be like a lot of effort put forth into preventing me from getting that training. But then after I got that training in medical school, I was able to get it longitudinally throughout my residency because I went to a program where I would be able to get training and I only looked at those programs. So I looked at ready programs, which are family medicine residency programs that also provide abortion training. And so I was able to get it throughout my training. It was just something that when my patients came into clinic, if they needed an abortion, that was something we were able to do. Of course, it depended on where you were in your training, how independently or not you'd perform the procedure. But from the very beginning, it was something that if my patients needed that care, I knew at my clinic with the attendings I worked with that we could get them that care that day. But of course, that's New York City or New York rather. And it is very different in other places. The place that I went to medical school, the city that I was in, there wasn't an abortion clinic in the entire city. There, I think, I don't know how many there are currently in that state, but I do know even more of them have closed. So I'm not even sure how many clinics remain open in that state. But if I had stayed in that state for my residency training, I would have had significant challenges. As it was in my residency, I was able to get even more training on elective rotations. But that opportunity for education, I believe, is no longer there, the site that I went to train at. So we are seeing it be a, a major barrier for people, the difficulty in getting that training. But again, every time we talk about the difficulty in accessing this training, we're really talking about a very tiny tiny piece of the fact that in a large scale, this access for everyone is being reduced significantly and not for reasons grounded in science, not for true patient increased safety or benefit, but because people, politicians have judgments about abortion and their judgments are becoming laws and policies and they're making their way into these clinics and sometimes closing them or making them difficult for patients and learners to access. You know, and admittedly, I never thought about the link between if providers have a hard time accessing this training, how then that would also impact women accessing this service. Right. I mean, because a lot of the stigma that represents itself as people standing outside of a clinic with posters and yelling is much more nuanced and quiet, but represented in deans that don't want to let you go people who organize your rotations and say that they lost your paperwork when they saw it was for Planned Parenthood, or things that you don't ever even know about, but are happening behind closed doors and maybe not even in conversations, maybe just in someone's mind because they're in a position of power. And you don't want to get to a point where you're assuming that, you know, conspiracy sort of theory and you're thinking through all these things. But over the years, it has come to my knowledge, the examples that I just gave, that these things were actually intentional and they were specific to rotations at, say, a Planned Parenthood or to students who are trying to get that training. 
You know, they are having this issue right now in Iowa. They're trying to ban abortions once the fetus has a heartbeat. Yes. And the university. We saw that in Ohio too. Yeah. And the University of Iowa is really trying to fight this because of the residency program that we have in obstetrics and gynecology mm-hmm. basically wouldn't exist anymore because right. they would lose their accreditation. So just, you know, and thinking about that on a state level, you know, Iowa is a fairly small state and University of Iowa is a huge university for the state. And then losing that accreditation would be really detrimental in all aspects, not just abortion care, but all aspects for women's health. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and if that access point of training for clinicians goes away, you can certainly anticipate that you'll see a flux in who chooses to come there for training and that the people who come there either will not get that training if they want it or will come there because that training is not included. And you'll have a group of obstetrician gynecologists who are not familiar with the most common outpatient procedure that a female-bodied person has. And that, to me, when there's no medical basis, there's no scientific basis, that's completely absurd and inappropriate because it's medicine. Medicine is scientific and fact-based and it should continue to be evidence-based. And it's almost shocking when we talk about it that way, that something that has no scientific or medical foundation is reducing scientific and medical education, which ultimately is of danger for patients. I mean, there are many times, and I'm sure if you have it, you will hear many stories of people who cross the picket lines because they needed an abortion. One day they're holding a sign that says abortion is murder, and the next day they're sitting in a clinic talking to a counselor saying, I still don't agree with this, but I can't be pregnant because of X, Y, and Z. I've seen that too. Or bring in their children in. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and that's the thing what I can see because every time I speak about abortion, I imagine the the counter argument of whatever I'm saying that people will have. And I was speaking earlier about when I became sexually active and I'm already thinking in my head of how people will interpret that statement if they are quote unquote against this. And I already imagine people making judgments about me as a person who's not married and sexually active. But the reality is sex is one of the few human experiences that almost all of us share. And it is natural and it is necessary for the continuation of our species. And it is pleasurable. And all of that is good and okay. And I think that if we continue that conversation, we can more easily get to a space where we recognize, okay, many people, not everyone is going to be sexually active at some point in their lives. A lot of the individuals who engage in sex with others have a risk of pregnancy and not every form of birth control or contraception is 100% effective. So how can we not follow this line of logical thinking to realize that even if you do everything right, and I'm using air quotes here, you could still end up in a situation with an unplanned or undesired pregnancy, no matter what your personal or political or religious beliefs are. And don't you want for yourself, don't you want for your loved ones to have the choice about what happens to your body from there forward? It should not only be if you have the access, if you have the income, if you have the time off work, if you have the ability to get to not one, but maybe three appointments that only you then have the choice. Everyone should have the choice. And I know that 
will eventually get into a conversation about reproductive justice. But that's one of the ways that this really fits into that conversation is it's not just about abortion being safe and legal. It's about the ability to access safe and legal abortion. Without providers, there is no choice. Without access, there is no choice. Providers are just one of the many things in a list that enables people who can become pregnant to access abortion. So you probably already answered our next question that we always like to ask as well, but I'll ask it anyway, just in case you have anything else to add. So we like to ask what informs your perspective or your practice. So again, maybe you can just share any additional information you have as it relates to abortion care, you know, why you do what you do and your philosophy of practice. I think that the reason that I feel so passionate about the areas of healthcare that I do is a lot about stigma in those areas and how that stigma shapes people's lived experiences. How the stigma about abortion affects somebody's ability to access an abortion and how different their life looks if they have that autonomy and are allowed to access an abortion or if they don't have that autonomy and they're not allowed to and they go through with the pregnancy and choose to raise the child and what that means for their access to education and for their income and for their mobility, should they want to move, should they want to move up within their job. And I see that same sort of interface when we talk about LGBT care and people's ability to access gender affirming care, what their life looks like if they're not able to versus what their life looks like if they are able to and how not being able to access that care can perpetuate dysphoria as it relates to mental illness, can perpetuate someone being in an unsafe or unhappy situation. I can't unfortunately count the number of times that someone who I provide gender affirming care to has said to me, you saved my life or you gave me a second chance at life. And then I think about sort of the third area that I provide care, which is in HIV primary care. And again, from the perspective of someone who has HIV, you're either able to access the care that you need, including medications, or you're not able to access that. And the degree of morbidity and mortality, obviously, between people who are HIV positive and treated and undetectable and those who are not is, as we all know, very significant. And in all of these cases, I used to think that the reason that I cared about abortion and LGBT health and HIV primary care was because it all had to do with sex and sex had so much stigma. And I think because of the stigma surrounding sex that I am aware of from the church that I was raised in and what those early life lessons were and sort of those formative years. But I don't really think it's that simple. I think it's more about stigma and how significantly stigmatized all of these areas are. And yes, ultimately, what does the stigma come from? It comes from sex and from the idea of viewing people as sexual beings and autonomous beings and enabling and allowing them to have those experiences that we would like to, in many situations, put shame associated with, but for which there is actually no appropriate place. And if we say that people can live their lives as they are and access 
the care that they need, then none of the things that I do are really that unique or interesting because they're all just medical care for people who are sexually active and who have gender identities and who might get pregnant at some point. You know, when you really boil it down to those aspects, there's nothing really special or unique about it. The only thing that makes it somewhat unique is how much stigma and judgment there is surrounding these aspects of people's lives. So like we said, today we're going to discuss providing abortion care for the LGBTQ population. So let's jump right in. So our first question is, what makes providing abortion care for the LGBTQ community unique? I think the best answer to that question is that it's not unique because everyone who provides abortion also provides care for LGBTQ people. And what I mean by that is that when you provide an abortion, if you're the one that did the counseling, it may have come out in your counseling how that person identifies their gender or a glance of their medication list may have revealed to you this person was born female and is on testosterone, or they may talk to you about their same-sex partner. But oftentimes we don't have that information, and we have to recognize as abortion providers, just as general healthcare providers, as surgeons, as human beings, we interface with and care for LGBTQ people all the time. And so I don't really think there's something that makes it unique because I don't think it should be unique to the knowledge that the person in front of you who's here for an abortion is a part of this community. I think we should provide abortion care just as we should provide all health care to people with no judgment and no expectation. And that includes not making an assumption about their pronouns, not making an assumption about their gender identity, not making an assumption about their sexual orientation, not making an assumption about their sexual behavior. So if we walk into every patient encounter, including an abortion encounter, without preconceived ideas about who this person is and what their sex life is like and what their gender identity is like, then we're not saying that there is any significant difference between a general quote-unquote abortion and abortion that's specifically for someone a part of this community. Because we should treat everyone who comes in for an abortion the same, and we should treat everyone who comes in for any healthcare the same, and that includes not having any judgments or uh, assumptions about them. You know, it's funny that you say that because Stephanie and I were just talking. We're like, you know, I think Stephanie and I hold a lot of assumptions and bias because every time we craft our interview guide, we always seem to ask, how is care different for this population or what is unique about this population? And I think every time we've talked to somebody, they say, it's not. You should approach it all the same. And so I think in some ways, we thought that women-centered care would be this more tailored approach, but really it's about providing personal care to everybody. And then you can tailor it, but really there is no space for assumptions or bias when it comes to providing patient-centered care. And it's an interesting lesson that we keep learning throughout all of our podcasts. Yes. But it's really great for you to ask because I think then it gives that opportunity for people to really clarify that perspective that all care should be delivered the same and without assumptions and judgment. And it's not bad to, you know, share this perspective over and over because I think that that's how we all as a medical community incorporate it into 
the way that we deliver care and how we change the medical community overall. Because the truth is not everybody is listening to this podcast or agreeing with a lot of the perspectives that I may be sharing on it or that other interviewees may be sharing. But the more that we expand the conversation within medical care to talk about no assumptions, no judgment, open-ended questions and equality of access to care, I think the more we move in the right direction in healthcare in general. Yes, exactly. And speaking of this too, you had brought this up in your answer as well, but talking about gender-affirming care, patient-centered care. So how do you provide a patient-centered environment for your LGBTQ patients? Or what tips do you have for our listeners to provide care that is gender and sexual orientation affirming? I like to think about a patient's experience from before they even walk through the door to try and hash out the more nuanced ways that a specific clinic that I'm at may or may not be affirming for them. So it's from the very beginning when they have access to information about this clinic. What does that access look like? What do the words on the flyers say or on the advertisement? Or what is the patient recommendation saying to them? You know, the review of the provider they might find online or a person who may be saying, hey, I had this experience at the clinic. And when they pick up the phone, what questions are they being asked? How are those questions being asked? Is someone asking the correct name to call them by? Are they asking about what kind of appointment they would like in a way that feels open-ended and inclusive? Are they making any assumptions based on the sound of the person's voice and calling them sir or calling them ma'am? And then that, of course, continues when they walk into the office. What are the people that are in the pictures on the walls look like? What are the people that are working there look like? Do they look like this patient? Can they, quote unquote, see themselves there? When they're in the waiting room, what sort of information are they seeing? Are there flyers with people? People who are completely different appearing than them? Are the people sitting in the waiting room completely different from them? Is there a way that they're being accepted visibly or is there a way that they're potentially being isolated by not being able to see themselves in this space? And of course, it includes the forms that they fill out, the way that their data is recorded in the electronic health record and whether or not there is a clear space for them to have their correct name and pronoun recorded. And once they're in the room with the provider, of course, that's what we as providers think the most about is how we speak to them. And that includes, as we've touched on, open-ended, non-judgmental, non-assuming questions where we say, what are the genders of your partners? We're making it plural. We're not making cis or trans partner status assume any assumptions. We're asking about the types of sex that people have, what parts of their bodies they use for sex, how they define those parts of their bodies and using the words that they choose. But if you think about all of this patient-centered care from before the person even walks in the door, you can get, I think, a better feel for what that experience of care looks like for them. And you realize that the moment that they're in the room with you, a lot has already happened and a lot will happen that is completely outside of your control. And that's why it's such a critical thing for everyone within a clinic structure from the people that are on the phone to security at the front desk to the people who are posing for the photographs on the wall to be on the same page about creating an inclusive space where people can see themselves literally and figuratively and where who they are, how they identify is being honored and supported. I really like some of the things that you mentioned there. You say that if we provide abortions, we have provided abortions to LGBTQ patients. And that might be, I'm just trying to picture just in my experience where I worked, we sort of had this room where everyone was in their gowns waiting 
for the procedure. And I hated that then. Maybe it's changed, but I'm just trying to picture how that would feel to someone who maybe looks of a different gender than a woman, how that would feel for the patient and then the other patients in that area. And I don't know if your clinic does that or if you've, or worked at clinics like that before that have done that and sort of how that's dealt with. So of course, every clinic is different and I haven't worked in a clinic where the patients are all together in gowns before. And obviously I agree with you. I can see where that may become difficult I think when we talk about those sorts of clinics, it's really important to also make the point that those clinics are like that because of inappropriate policies and attempts to limit access, right? The reason that people are sort of being grouped in that way so that they can meet the need in that community is because that clinic is probably serving a much higher degree of need than it would if the other clinics in the state hadn't been closed due to inappropriate legislation, or that that clinic is performing abortions in that way because they can only perform abortions. And that's because of state regulations on where abortions can be provided versus the experience that I had in New York in my training where whoever you are, you come through the same door, you fill out the same paperwork. If you're pregnant, you can have that done during that office visit. There's not additional state legislation that dictates how your care goes. But although I haven't had the experience that you mentioned of patients together in a room in gowns, Definitely, you're bringing up a really, really important point when we talk about the way that a lot of abortion care is provided in the United States in abortion-only clinics. And what does that experience look like and feel like if you are a male-presenting person in that space? So that conversation in one of the clinics that I work at here in Ohio was a really, really important conversation and how to make that space feel more comfortable to them, but also a really critical point that you mentioned is how to continue to make that space feel comfortable to and as comfortable as can be to the people who are female presenting. Because there is this balance that comes into place there where we have to recognize the incidence of sexual violence among female presenting people. And we have to recognize the amount of stigma and verbal violence that these female presenting and male presenting people Everyone that walks through the doors of this clinic is experiencing from the protesters outside, from the media in a very general sense, from the very top of the government down, telling them that this is wrong. And we have to say, okay, this experience for you is probably already very difficult from things that we cannot control. How do we make sure that this experience for you is not additionally difficult once you're inside of our walls. And that's where we have to make sure that the people who are female identified and female presenting who fill out this form do not get to a point about a question about gender identity and say, oh my gosh, what is this? I don't understand what this is. This is so frustrating. And while that might seem unlikely or unrealistic at the clinic that I work at, we've actually found that that does happen. And we've found that out both from patient feedback, as well as from creating spaces, focus groups, where we're intentionally asking these patients to tell us about their experience and how they would feel if this example of a form is put in front of them. We have to balance that then with the person who is male presenting and may I 
identify as a trans male may not, but who potentially looks different as far as their gender presentation than other people in the waiting room. When they get to the gender identity question on the form, the most likely case is that they feel very affirmed by the fact that that is being asked there. And we have to look at each of these people's perspectives and find a way to make both of them as comfortable as possible. The way that we are currently working to do that is first letting patient opinion in the form of focus groups, in the form of actually taking examples of these forms and of these ideas to create this space to the potential patients and say, okay, how does that make you feel? And take that same thing to the patients who've already been in the space seeking abortion care and say, how do these questions make you feel? What can we do to make everyone here as comfortable as possible? And I think that that is really patient-centered care in a nutshell, right? If you are at a difficult point, if you need to make a decision that you don't want to isolate or make uncomfortable some of your patients in order to make more comfortable other patients, go to your patients and ask them. Get some way that you can get direct information from them on what they think, because it's not the same at every clinic. It's not the same in every state. It's not the same in every side of town. People have very different experiences. And if you really want to know what's best for your patients, ask them. And in doing that, the way that our clinic is moving forward to try and make this space comfortable for everyone is to provide patient education that's available at varying levels of information overload, right? So you've got a big sign that clarifies that this is a space that is accepting and affirming for LGBTQ identified people. You've got smaller brochure type information that's much more detailed and much more long that is explaining why this kind of care is happening at this abortion clinic. You've got a definition card that goes with the intake form that clarifies what these new words on the form mean. You can look at the definition card if you want to. You don't have to if you don't want to. And then you reevaluate the whole process after you've done what you thought was the best thing to do and you find out if you were right or not. Is this information, are these ways of informing patients really helping to reduce frustration throughout their visit? Are they really feeling affirmed in this space? Did the things that you thought would work because you asked the patients, did those things really turn out the way that you thought they would? And I think the way that we've really come to understand how to do it best after we ask the patients is to provide information and to try and make it inclusive in both directions. One of the things that is so important to understand about this conversation that I didn't understand when I came to Ohio and that a fantastic colleague of mine really very simply broke it down for me to help me understand is this. When we talk about the history of abortion and of stigma with abortion, and we talk about women having abortions, if we try and make that statement more inclusive by recognizing that people who are transgender, people who are lesbian, people who are gay, people who are queer also access abortion care, and we try and change that statement to say people have abortions, we're erasing women from the conversation in a way that fails to recognize the reason this is a stigmatized conversation, the reason that this is a stigmatized, despite being safe and legal, component of medical care is because it was largely viewed to be unique to women. If men had abortions and women did not, I do not believe 
that we would be covering this topic on this podcast or facing the culture surrounding abortion politically, culturally, religiously that we are. And if we take women out of that conversation and we just say people who have abortion, we are making a very, very important mistake. And a mistake that is incongruent to a lot of the ideas of reproductive justice and of recognizing the intersectionality of people's experiences, where they come from, and the importance of their points of access. We can't erase women from this conversation because this is a conversation because it's about women. So we can't just go from a form that is focused on female presenting people to a form that is completely irrespective of gender identity. We have to find a space in the middle where we're saying women and people who have abortion. And then using that as a way to open up the conversation about how we have two people potentially of different gender identities who are having a very similar experience, though different, and how we can make that experience as affirming for both of them as possible. I really, really like that what you just said. I know that, you know, not to get too off topic, but I know when Nicole and I are coming up with our name for our business, Women-Centered Health, we had this discussion about using that word and that we wanted to make sure that we were inclusive of all people. But at the same time, there are issues in providing health care to women. And that's what we're trying to overcome. So again, erasing the term, you know, the word woman from our business is sort of defeats the purpose. It's not just patient centered care, mm-hmm. people centered care, it's about women. And so I think that it's a really good distinction. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about that, too, about using that word woman, you know, and it's a little controversial, I think, but I really appreciated how you talked about that. And again, it was a perspective that was given to me that I did not understand on my own. And so I have to give credit where credit is due. But I think that that goes back to the whole idea of us being a collaborative community as a medical community and a collaborative community as a patient-centered evidence-based community, right? If we are all acting in the patient's best interest and we're all using sound evidence to inform that practice, in theory, of course, not perfectly, but in theory, we should be able to come to relatively similar conclusions about what that care looks like because it's informed directly by the patient and because we're using evidence. You can't or should not be able to argue with facts and you have to do what's right and best by your patient and let your patient guide some of that practice because you don't go home with them. You're not going to be there over their shoulder telling them, do this, don't do that. They have agency and they will practice that agency as they should. So you really have to think about what's realistic for them and what's possible for them and what do they want. Yeah, I'm just sitting here absorbing. I am loving this. And, and Stephanie, thank you for bringing up. I know that the deciding on our name was really a point of contention because how do we acknowledge everybody but really make it about a population who needs it? And yeah, I just, this is great. So we've kind of talked a little bit about reproductive justice. And in a previous podcast with Tony Von Leonard, we talked extensively about reproductive justice and and also the role of reproductive justice when it comes to abortion care and access. So we were wondering, what is your perspective on the role of reproductive justice as it relates to abortion care and access for members of the LGBTQ community? 
I think that reproductive justice is essentially the only framework with which we should look at LGBTQ identified people's access to abortion because it's, it highlights the broadness of the intersections in that care for that community. And also not just for the LGBTQ community, it highlights the variability within how that care looks. Reproductive justice is something that I came to understand a little bit later in my career. And of course, I think that there are many different ways to understand it, but it is not purely medical. It recognizes the varying experiences that people have that inform their access to care. And one of those components that determines people's access to care is their education, their knowledge, and their identity. If you are a male presenting person and you walk up to a desk that is at an abortion clinic and you say that you need an appointment for an abortion, if there has already been an assumption made about who you are and your capability to get pregnant, you may have a lot of difficulty accessing that care. The same thing is true if we talk about people in a physically isolated environment where they cannot literally get to that clinic. The same is true if we talk about people who have difficulty accessing care related to cost and the economic component of that. So gender is one way that we talk about access to reproductive health. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of other ways that we can also talk about that access. And all of those conversations about how identities and income and knowledge and location affect someone's ability to access their reproductive and bodily autonomy, that to me is reproductive justice. It's not just a medical component. It's not just a access component. It takes into consideration people's entire lived experiences, including their racial and ethnic and economic and political backgrounds. And in that perspective, gender identity, gender presentation, sexual behavior, assumptions about sexual behavior and sexual orientation, all of that then comes clearly into potential conflict with someone's ability to access reproductive care. There was a very large survey from, I think it was 2005, 2007, 2009 out of New York City high schools that actually showed a much, much higher percentage of pregnancy among queer identified youth as opposed to youth who identify only opposite sex partners. And what that information should affect in us is a deeper look into why this is the case. Are we making assumptions about our queer youth that they cannot become pregnant or that they are not having sex that could get them pregnant? Are we not giving them the same access to education and to care that would prevent unplanned or undesired pregnancy? And that conversation then is an a part of a bigger picture about who gets pregnant, why, and who gets abortions and why. No, I think that the study that you bring up sounds really interesting and really highlights kind of another key, you know, we already know we have issues with sex education in the United States, but now, you know, there's just another layer that we really need to think about. Right. And I think that when we look at studies like this, I think it's easy for people to try and say, oh, that's New York. Well, one of the things that that study highlighted is that it had a very broad demographic of students participating. And so they really did have a very diverse sample. And so we were able to look then within the diversity of the sample that they presented, what different people's experiences were. And I 
think that when we look at research that way, we can use it, you can extrapolate it to see what would be applicable to the population that we're caring for, whatever that population looks like. Could I make one more like little snippet thing about reproductive justice? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the thing that I want to make sure that we say in respect to reproductive justice, of course, is that while it, there can be a different understanding of meaning for different people, there is a specific origin to trace for the word or for the phrase. And it is important to recognize that, it, as you talked about in a previous podcast, from grassroots organizations and not out of the medical community, but also specifically out of the community of women of color. And I just want to make sure that, that that statement, that recognition is included in our conversation about it. Because part of what I understand reproductive justice to be discussing is the understanding of each of us as individuals' intersectionality with our access to reproductive care, not only abortion, but all areas of our, our reproductive health and our bodily autonomy around reproduction. But my experience and understanding of reproductive justice is shaped by my personal lived experience and why reproductive justice entered the conversation about reproductive rights and being pro-choice, etc., was that there was largely a void and an area of that conversation that was not being informed by women of color and discussing the variable components of reproductive justice that were not only only specific to women and abortion. Yes, and for our listeners who haven't checked out that episode, it is the episode with Toni Von Leonard, and she is one of the original women to coin the term, and it is a wildly powerful interview, and if you haven't listened to it, we encourage you to go and listen to it. So you had recently just spoke about the study related to queer youth being more common in the LGBTQ population to have a... um, Actually, it was queer youth unplanned pregnancy. Oh, unplanned pregnancy. Sorry. So you had just spoke about how queer youth were more likely to experience an unplanned pregnancy out of the LGBTQ population. Are there other sort of statistics about this population and or myths or common misconceptions surrounding abortions within the LGBTQ community? So that study compared many groups, but the primary outcome that was of interest is the higher rate of unplanned pregnancy among queer youth as compared to youth who reported opposite sex partners exclusively. So essentially queer youth, higher risk of unplanned pregnancy versus heterosexual identified youth by behavior orientation. And I mean, the most obvious misconception or myth about providing abortion care to the LGBTQ community is that abortion care is not relevant to the LGBTQ community. I think in the movement of both the reproductive rights and justice focus, as well as LGBT rights and justice, there has only recently come, at least in my knowledge, to be a recognition of the intersection of those two, that LGBT-identified people also need to access reproductive rights and justice, and that their gender identity, sexual behavior, and orientation informs their experience of access to bodily autonomy around their reproductive health. I think that we make assumptions that people who identify as lesbian only are people born female who are attracted to people born female, both of whom identify as female. That is not the case. I think we also make assumptions that 
people who males born males, cis males who identify as gay only have cis male partners. That is also not true. We make assumptions that guys on T, and when I say guys on T, in this case, I'm actually talking about trans men or people of the trans masculine experience, that they cannot get pregnant if they're on T. That is also untrue. We talked about queer youth unplanned pregnancy rates as compared to heterosexual identified or opposite sex behavior youth and the differences in unplanned pregnancy, meaning that queer youth are more likely to get pregnant. There are layers and layers of assumptions and they are based on who we think people are having sex with, the kind of sex that they're having, and the possible outcomes of that sex. And we just continuously get back to this same point where we're saying you cannot make assumptions. And we also have to understand beyond you can't make assumptions on visit one with your patient, you can never make assumptions on any visit with your patient because sexuality, sexual behavior, orientation is fluid. Let's say you had a cis female who came in and she reports same-sex partners only, and that was your entire quote-unquote birth control discussion because she had a girlfriend. Did you ask if her relationship was open or closed? Did you ask if she's ever had male partners? And when you see her again, are you going to assume that contraception for the purpose of pregnancy prevention is still not relevant to her? And is that assumption correct based on her current activity? It all continuously comes back to not making assumptions and to keeping the dialogue and the questions very open-ended with our patients. And the greatest advocacy work that we do, in my opinion, happens alone in the room between us and our patients and us providing them with education about their own bodies so that they can have as much autonomy as is possible for them. If they don't know if pregnancy is possible, then it is our responsibility to help them understand what is possible. Going back to a trans guy or someone of a trans masculine experience on T, it's my responsibility as their physician to provide them that education. That education then allows them to access their reproductive autonomy by getting pregnant or not getting pregnant. And that action of me educating them in some ways can be viewed as advocacy. And their autonomy in making those decisions is them accessing reproductive justice for themselves. Okay, so we're just talking about myths and different points that you make with each patient. And I'm just wondering, how do you approach an appointment and communicate with a patient who is seeking an abortion? Again, it goes straight to not making any assumptions. So if a patient comes in and they're there for a positive pregnancy test and they have had a point of care pregnancy test before you walk in the room and you know the result, the first thing for you to do after you introduce yourself is to give them the information about their body. So you tell them immediately what the pregnancy test is as soon as you know it. If you know, they have a right to know. No hiccups in between. You do not make an assumption about whether or not they want to be pregnant or don't want to be pregnant. They may have come into the office with one thought and they may be having a different thought right now. Definitely giving them time and a pause after receiving the information is also important. In the clinic that I, or one of the clinics that I currently work at, we do not have, unfortunately, point of care pregnancy testing. So either the patient is coming in having taken a pregnancy test at home, or they're coming in for a pregnancy test and there will be a significant amount of wait time while the lab processes their pregnancy test before we can inform them of the outcome. So in that case, there is sometimes a discussion, depending on what the patient desires, about what their feelings are about the pregnancy test being either positive or negative. And it's really about letting the patient clarify for you what their decision is 
and giving them the information that they need. As far as the physician or the nurse practitioner or the medical provider getting an understanding of why they want to access that, that's not necessary or appropriate unless you are helping the patient think through the decision that's best for them. If the patient knows their decision and you give them the appropriate information regarding that decision, asking questions like, why do you want to have an abortion or why do you want to stay pregnant can very easily feel judgmental for the patient and are not appropriate. But asking the patient to think through those things if they have not come to a decision on their own as a matter of helping them move through the process of making a decision is a different story. So providing an abortion from the very beginning for a patient who knows exactly what the, their decision is versus providing an abortion and thus the counseling in the diagnosis of a positive pregnancy test for a patient who does not know their decision is, of course, very different. And I think it's really important that when women and people who can become pregnant come to us with a positive pregnancy test and they know what they want, that we honor that they know, and we do not require them to go through any additional questioning or challenges in order to access the care that they know is best for them. So if you say your pregnancy test is positive, your patient says that she would like an abortion, she is aware of all of her choices, you help her access an abortion, whether that's referring her, in my case, to myself at a different clinic or to yourself on a different day, or if I was still in New York, to that same day get the care that she needs without additional hoops. But a lot of the things that states put in the way feel and are intentionally very judgmental for patients to quote unquote, make them think about their decision, such as here in Ohio, the 24 hour wait period, which of course is not truly 24 hours. In many cases, it's much longer, but always it meets the 24 hour requirement. Patients who know what is right for them, they don't need to be forced to have two appointments in order to have the introspective time to evaluate that. That's a very patriarchal idea. And it is patriarchy truly in action as it is white men in Ohio who have pass that legislation to say, you really need to think about it. This is a big decision. She's aware that it's a big decision. She knows that she really needs to think about it. And so that story and that perspective of being patient-centered really doesn't change if the patient is of a different gender identity or sexual orientation. Of course, with these conversations and with providing abortion care, it can feel a bit different. There can be additional things to address with your patient. As we talked about, patient education as a form of advocacy and helping them access autonomy. If I have a patient who, say, identifies as a trans male, they have a positive pregnancy test and they need to access an abortion. I'm going to speak with them specifically from the point of giving them the knowledge that I have that, hey, this clinic that you go to, it may or may not be set up to call you by the correct name. It may use your legal name. They may or may not be aware of pronouns. And now I'm not speaking about a clinic that I work at now, but at other places I have worked in the past, you know, they may make assumptions. And essentially that's me as a physician, just helping the patient to understand what their upcoming experience is going to be like, because being misnamed, misgendered can be very dysphoria producing for a lot of patients. And so anything that I can do to help them anticipate that experience to reduce dysphoria is important. But the overall experience of providing an abortion, as we said in the beginning of this podcast, to someone who's a part of the LGBTQ community or to someone who's not really should not be different. The only times that I can think, think of that it may have a different look to it is when additional knowledge would be of benefit to the patient so that they can anticipate their upcoming experience. It's the same sort of idea as when we notify patients who come to the clinic that I 
work at that there will be protesters outside. Anything that you can do to help them feel more prepared for what's going to be their experience, I think can be really beneficial to them. How do you approach and communicate with a patient after they have uh, the abortion procedure? With love and compassion, just like you treat any other patient at any other point in an appointment. If they have questions, you answer them as is appropriate. If they need more time to talk and you're capable of giving that to them, you do that. If they don't have an intense and emotional response in this moment associated and they just want to get the heck out because they have somewhere else to be or because they have a different support person that they want to talk to other than you or whatever the case may be, then you honor that. Abortion can be a very emotional experience for some people. It can also not be an emotional experience. And it's important to not be judgmental either way. Most patients, when they're done with their abortion and feeling well, they want to just go home and go through the rest of their lives. So for those having an, an, a more emotional response, what tips or, or how do you approach those situations? In those situations, I think it's important as much as you can to normalize their experience. Talking about one in three, one in four women will have an abortion is really important to let patients know that they're not alone. In this situation that we talked about earlier, where a lot of patients are grouped together in a room either before or after their abortion, in some cases that can feel really uncomfortable for people who don't feel like it accesses enough of their privacy. And as we talked about, those situations are, of course, a byproduct of laws and policies that restrict abortion access and are intended to shame women and people who have abortions. But in other positive perspectives of that forced experience, it can sometimes be helpful for patients to literally see that they're not alone and how many other people share their experience. I think also helping the patient unpack why they're feeling emotional about it, open-ended questions, not leading, but helping them as much as possible unpack why they're upset about it. And often it will come down to religious concerns. You mentioned before about patients who may have a religious experience related to their abortion, or excuse me, a religious judgment related to their abortion, that it's good, that it's bad, that it dictates if they'll go to heaven or hell. And if that is where a patient is coming from, I think it's helpful for them to isolate that and then to isolate, well, what is it that they believe? Do they believe that? Or is it that someone else believes it or someone else has told them that they believe it? And oftentimes that's where those conversations end up, that someone outside of the patient has a judgment or the patient is aware of outside judgments about abortion and has internalized some of that and helping the patient understand not what the outside judgment is, but about how they personally feel and what is true for them and encouraging them to be as good to a loved one as they are to themselves is always something that I bring up. I find it very helpful to sort of flip the script with patients and say, so this internal conversation you're having with yourself, one of judgment, one of shame, is this how you would talk to your sister? Is this how you would talk to your best friend? Would you tell them these harsh and painful things that you're maybe telling yourself and almost can always the answer is no. And so I encourage patients to be as good to themselves as they would to loved ones in a similar situation. Well, I think that's great advice. And, and since you bring this up about religion, and you sort of touched on how you would respond to someone who says, oh, um, you know, if I go to hell for having an abortion, but kind of the flip side of that is, how do you respond when a patient or someone questions what you are doing and that you provide abortions? How do you handle that? 
I handle it by being honest with the patient, just as I have been during this podcast. For me, I do not believe that abortion is wrong. I do not believe that abortion is murder, just as I do not believe that performing gender-affirming care to people who identify as a gender different than their sex assigned at birth is in any way bad or wrong, just as I do not believe that providing care for HIV-positive people is in any way bad or wrong. I believe that it is not only right, but in many cases, one of the most important aspects of care that I can provide because it helps people maintain their safety. And I, as a physician who has had experience working in areas where abortion still is illegal, I spent a month in medical school working in Uganda in a wing of the hospital that was essentially dedicated to women who had attempted to self-induce abortion. And there were signs over the trash cans in this hospital that specified that if someone was caught discarding of the products of their pregnancy, that they would go to jail. So you can imagine the nature even within this hospital was very punitive for these people who are predominantly women, to my knowledge, not having talked to them about their identity. And I'm aware as a scientist, as a physician of what happens when people can't access safe and legal abortion. And I don't want my patients to die of sepsis because they wanted an abortion and no one would give them one. I don't want them to live a life that was forced upon them because they chose to have sex. I do not think that choosing to have sex and choosing to be pregnant are the same thing. I disagree wholeheartedly that by simple nature of choosing to engage in sex, someone is accepting all of the ramifications that come with it, such as potential pregnancy. And I think that that idea is very punitive and patriarchal. When I have patients say things like, oh, well, I don't agree with that. Abortion is murder. I say, okay, well, I respect how you feel just as I respect how all of my patients feel. And for some of them, accessing an abortion is right for them, is what enables them to maintain their jobs, is what enables them to care for the children that they already have. Whatever my answer in that moment may be, but it's about, for me, in that moment that the patient disagrees with what I do, I'm highlighting for them that they're, oh, that's totally okay with me. They can absolutely disagree with me and I'm happy that they have access to that right. But if they didn't disagree with me and if they needed an abortion, there must be providers in order for them to access the other side of that right. And in the end, it's all about doing what's right for your patients and keeping them safe. So you mentioned along the way many things that you talk about with patients who are seeking abortion care and you providing abortion care. And maybe some of our audience, a lot of them might not actually provide abortion care, but maybe a referral, but they may want to become advocates for um, providing and maintaining access to abortion care. So how, what are some good ways that providers can be advocates for abortions? I think the easiest way is to talk about it. I feel that the more that it is a hushed and quiet, if a all existent conversation in our precepting rooms, in our clinics, in our presentations when it's relevant. I think that the more that we shy away from it, the more power that we give it in a lot of ways. And at the end of the day, we are clinicians, we are medical providers, and we're talking about a safe procedure that is still legal. And everything else that we put with it just serves to stigmatize it further. I think that we have to recognize the current context that we're in. But I also think that being verbal about it and continuing the focus on evidence-based, it's safe, patient-centered, people will access it whether it's safe or not, 
thus we should make it medically safe for patients. I think that the more we emphasize those two components in medicine in general, and specifically to abortion, the better advocates for our patients we are. So in addition to obviously talking about it and being verbal about it, I think that one of the most important things that educators, people who work with residents or medical students can do is to help make sure that they are performing an appropriate options-based counseling. So when a patient does not know what the decision that they will make regarding a unplanned pregnancy is, the questions that we ask when we lead a patient through unpacking that for them are very important. And it's important to not ask leading questions, not ask judgmental questions, and to give medically accurate information. There's a lot of medically inaccurate information out there, and it's our responsibility as educators to make sure medical students and residents do not use that information and that they also perform open options counseling that helps the patient figure out what's best for them, and then that they're informed enough about those different options that they can guide the patient appropriately. I mean, obviously, every primary care physician doesn't have to know every single aspect of medicine, but we should certainly be able to refer our patients appropriately and get them the care that they need if we ourselves don't provide it. So education as a form of advocacy, both for patients and for learners, personal knowledge in as, as it relates to what we can share with our patients. If you don't perform abortions, where they can get an abortion, what that experience will be like, having some way to connect them to that care. I think also the truth is that for providers who don't provide abortions, a lot of the times it's a lot easier for them to be advocates because the reality is still that safety is a concern. I've talked on this podcast several times about practicing in Ohio. I'm not specifying the clinic or the city because of safety concerns. And so when a doctor is not experiencing those concerns, they can be much more quote unquote out. So if they are writing letters to the editor, if they're performing interviews, if they are writing opinion editorials, if they are sharing things on social media, and they are comfortable saying that they are a pro-choice clinician, then that is a part of the conversation. And it increases its visibility and is of great appreciation from many providers who do do abortions because they may not feel comfortable or safe being as quote unquote out about it. In addition to the way that we talk about it in a variety of forms, like I said, social media interviews with educators, with our patients, the way that we vote and the things that we know about the people that we vote for with their respect to how those politicians that we're voting for or against have voted in ways that either limit reproductive access or increase it that are pro-legislation, such as in Iowa, you mentioned the heartbeat bill, as it is called, or other bills that intentionally limit access to abortion, thus making it less safe for our patients by having to travel greater distances or not being able to access at all. I think that that is something that's not provider specific, right, or clinician specific, but that we all should know who we're voting for and what their policies are and what electing this official is going to look like in a few months or years for our patients and their health care. And beyond those components, I mean, it can really... I feel like it can filter into almost everything that we do. I mean, but the easiest things I would say are to talk about it, educate about it, and vote about it. So one of the last questions we like to ask is about things that providers can take away from this interview. And I know that you have really weaved this into much of the interview, especially your last question, but do you have any additional tips you would like to discuss for providers who also provide abortion services to people who identify as LGBTQ? 
The only additional tips that kind of come to mind are to accept that we need to continue to reevaluate everything that I've said during this entire interview repeatedly over time. I think that the younger generations in how they define their sexual orientation and their gender identity and the increasing expansiveness of those definitions and understandings and behaviors highlight for us as clinicians and us as adults and as humans, that things are changing. And that is the only constant, right, is that things will continue to change. And so this idea of being open and broad and fluid is going to only become increasingly important. The things that I have said and the recommendations that I have made and the language that I have used five years from now will probably not be the most appropriate way to think or to talk about it. And it's a good thing, right? We're adapting to fit the data and the knowledge that we have, and also the humans that we are serving, the patients that we are caring for. And so to be open to change is critical because the conversation around reproductive health, reproductive rights, reproductive justice around, um, I mean, when I was in un undergrad, it was lesbian and gay studies. It was not lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. It was not lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex. Like these, this rainbow keeps shedding light on new areas of our knowledge as humans and as clinicians. And we need to not be rigid and accept and welcome that continued expansion, which ultimately means that at a certain point, all of us will be wrong because things will change. And I think being open to that and keeping at the front of everything that we do and say evidence-based, patient-centered is really the most important thing. I do have a question related to the previous question. You talked about options counseling, making sure that medical student educators are, or help their medical students learn about providing open options counseling. Is there anything, just a quick tidbit on where providers could go to learn more about how to do that? Or do you have any tips about how to talk about options counseling? Yes, I'm so glad that you asked and so glad that I get the opportunity to share this fantastic resource. So this was one of the reading requirements or workbook requirements when I was in residency and it gets updated. The most recent is from 2016. It is the Teach Early Abortion Training Workbook and that stands for Training in Early Abortion for Comprehensive Healthcare. It's out of UCSF and as I mentioned, the most recent copy is from 2016. It is a fantastic 185-page document that has different areas, including options counseling for providers and future providers to be educated on. It talks about abortion statistics. It talks about abortion law. As I mentioned, it goes through informed consent and counseling and options counseling. It has exercises that it guides providers through. And then it also provides a baseline framework for the actual medical component of early abortion, both medical abortion and procedural abortion. It talks about adoption. It talks about miscarriage. It talks about becoming a provider. It is a truly invaluable resource that I reference almost once a week that I encourage anyone who is interested as a future provider or a current provider and absolutely anyone who is an educator of abortion providers or residents and medical students in general to be aware of. It's a really, really awesome resource. 
Awesome. So we would really like to thank you so much for your time today and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through your communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? I think the main thing I just want to say is thank you to the two of you for having this topic addressed so extensively throughout this mini series. Um, I know myself and Dr. Shaw really, really appreciate this. And as I mentioned, I think the conversations that we have about these areas of care only serve more to educate us, educate our patients, educate our learners and bring it further out of sort of the dark shadows of stigma. And the other thing that I would say is thank you to all of the people who are listening to this podcast um, and feel free to have criticisms or points of improvement about myself and all the people that are sharing their opinions here. One of the things that I've talked to Stephanie and Nicole about is how these are really sensitive topics and it's easy to take a misstep. And I'm by no means the only person of expert opinion or knowledge on these areas. And it really is a continued conversation among all of us that focuses on evidence-based patient-centered care that can help us provide the very best care for all of our patients now and moving forward. Nolan, thank you for your time. And I mean, this is now what the third recording we've done with you. So we know that this was quite a, a commitment for you to record this whole mini series with us. And like I said, this is something that uh, when we did market research was an area that providers predominantly or kind of more overwhelmingly stated that they just didn't feel the most comfortable discussing these issues. And so we really hope that our listeners find this very informative. I know Stephanie and I have found this very informative. And again, we thank you because that's a lot of time commitment for you, Dr. Shaw, to record three different episodes with us. So thank you. You're so welcome. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Did you know that you can get our show notes for every episode just by becoming a patron of our podcast? Check out our website to find out how you can become a patron and keep us recording at www.womencenteredhealth.com. Just click on the support us slash Patreon tab. Also on our website, you can send us your thoughts and let us know if you are interested in being on our podcast. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and on Facebook.